chapter 1 and verse 11, if you just look at this phrase, here's where I'm getting this gospel. Look at how Paul says it. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And then verses 12 through 17 flow out of that phrase. So I want to I highlight six things for us this morning. Here's the first. The gospel is God's gospel, not man's. Notice that in verse 11. Again, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So what's Paul saying? This is not man's gospel. This is God's gospel. Paul's saying, I didn't write this. I'm just delivering the mail. He starts the letter to the Romans this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Then he calls the gospel, the gospel of his son. And then he ends the letter saying, I am a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. This is God's gospel. Look at Galatians 1, 11. Here's what, how Paul says it. I'd have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit uh, in eternity past got together and they came up with designed, invented, we could say, what we would call the gospel. It's God's idea. It's the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which Paul says, I have been entrusted. So it was entrusted to Paul. Now, but it wasn't first entrusted to Paul. We actually need to back up and take a step or two back. Uh, who was the gospel first entrusted to? It was entrusted to the prophets. Uh, remember it says uh, in Galatians, it, it says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. The gospel was preached to Abraham, Paul says, in Galatians 3.7. So uh, that apostolic gospel was first preached to Abraham, and we could even go back before Abraham because we know the gospel was preached to Satan in the Garden of Eden. And we had that, that uh, from, from God himself saying, he will crush your head. This, this gospel promise that the head of Satan would be destroyed. And so what I'm saying is this. The gospel's old. It's old. It's not new. This is an old gospel, but what's new for Paul, and, and as Paul is stepping into his ministry, what's new is that the gospel is now going to the Gentiles. Listen to Ephesians 3. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known. And so here's the progression. You've got the gospel that originates with God being passed on to the prophets 
being passed on to the apostles, being passed on to the church. And then listen to 2 Corinthians 5. says, Christ has reconciled us, that is the church, to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the, minute, the message of reconciliation. Listen. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so that's the, that's the progression. The gospel that comes up, God comes up with, passes it to the prophets, to the apostles, to the church, and now to the church to then do what with? Give to sinners. To pass on to the lost. And um, I, I was encouraged this week. I mentioned this in prayer a moment ago. Um, just this week, thinking about how many uh, interactions I had with uh, those of you in this church about the gospel uh, going out. And, you know, y'all know I was in North Carolina last week and involved in a funeral there and preaching at a church there. And the gospel went out to many, many people in those settings. And as I'm driving back, uh, I get a text message from one of our missionaries talking about preaching the gospel to the unreached. And we, we were discussing uh, that. I talked to another man who, um, in the church who, had, who was sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, and he was asking for prayer for that. Um, I talked to uh, another brother in the church asking about sharing the gospel with a family member. On Tuesday on the phone, I talked to another in the church who was conducting a funeral, who was going to be leading a funeral and preaching the gospel in that setting. Uh, I heard Tuesday that a bunch of our college students were going out on the college campus to preach the gospel. Uh, on Wednesday, we had city group where uh, we were gathered in uh, my, my house and the gospel was preached and there were some visitors there that heard through the gospel catechism the gospel. Uh, talked to a counselor this week who was preaching the gospel and talking about how the gospel is ministered in the counseling rooms. And then Thursday, uh, some of the members from the church went across the street and uh, the school over here and are working on building relationships for the sake of the gospel. That's just a little bit of interaction just this week with members in this church moving the gospel forward. And, and how could we not, when it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we've been entrusted, the gospel has been entrusted to us, this message of reconciliation, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. God making His appeal through us. Through, who's the us? Well, we're sinners too. So God's speaking to sinners through sinners. Not angels proclaiming the gospel to sinners, but sinners, fellow sinners, preaching the gospel to sinners. Richard Baxter used to say, as a dying man to dying men is how God moves his gospel forward. And this is why Paul is looking at himself going, how could this be possible? How could I be a steward of this gospel of the glory of the blessed God. How could I be entrusted to preach this gospel to others knowing who I am and who I was? This leads to the second thing I want us to see. Paul's apostolic stewardship of the gospel is by God's strength. Look at verse 12. He says, I thank Him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. 
Now, that's actually a really difficult verse to understand, especially if you just look at it for a moment and don't really dig into it. It looks like he's saying, because I was so faithful, God made me an apostle. You remember Paul, <laughs> Paul's former life? That, that's a little bit of an odd thing if it works like that. And, and I read a lot of commentaries on this, and there's some weird exegetical gymnastics people go through to try to figure out what this means. I think we should take it as it reads. That God put Paul in the ministry because he was faithful, and he was faithful because Christ strengthened him by grace. Here's how Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. Though it was not I. But the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. So Paul's faithful uh, because Christ strengthened him by his grace. I, I learned this early on as a Christian, how the grace of God works through our faithfulness, that we really can be faithful to Christ, but it's grace. And, and here, here's how I, I learned this lesson. When I was converted at 18, I came out of the gates as an evangelist. An ignorant one, <laughs> I didn't know anything, um, but I was talking to everybody I could talk to. Um, I would uh, immediately started trying to talk to all my kind of partying buddies and all the, all the guys that I knew at that time, and they wrote me off quickly as a religious zealot, and at that point, all those relationships were done, and I had to move on to the streets. And so I'd go in, in, and into the college campus where I was at, and I'm starting to just tell everybody in my classes, talk to professors, talk to other students. Um, and, and then I would get a job, and I would try to share the gospel. I almost lost a job because of trying to share the gospel on the clock, which you should not do that. You should do your job uh, and try to sh share the gospel, but being a good employee. Um, but, but I'm trying to share the gospel in all these settings. As a youth minister, I, 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 I'm not only trying to share the gospel with the youth, but I'm going to their uh, going to their high school, Milton High School, and sitting at, at the lunch table and having them bring their friends so I could share the gospel with their friends. And I would look at other Christians and be like, what's y'all's problem? This is easy. It's like breathing to share the gospel with everybody. Uh, until it wasn't easy anymore. And it was as if the Lord removed whatever strength He had given me. And I remember sitting down early in the church. We would go down to the bars and clubs and things, and we were down at Pensacola Beach, and I was getting ready, we were praying right before we got out of the car, me and some of the men to go share the gospel, and uh, I remember just being terrified, and I felt paralyzed with fear to get out of the car and go try to share the gospel that I had done so many times, and I remember I finally got myself to get out of the car and begin to walk around, and I couldn't even talk to a 10-year-old girl. I was terrified. And I thought, what happened? It's like every bit of strength was removed. And, and I look, and, and then I, I understood what every Christian struggled with. Um, and, and, and then reflecting on that, I think this is what Paul's getting at. Christ strengthened him 
for a particular purpose. He's a sinner like all of us, but God gave him a measure of strength to be an apostle, to to play the role that he played. And I had strength for a season to do a particular work the Lord wanted me to do, and then he removed it. And And I think that this is often how the Lord works. He says, I'm an apostle because God strengthened me for faithfulness all by His grace. Which leads to the third thing. The grace of the Gospel overflows for us. Look at verse 14. As Paul begins to describe his conversion, he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. It overflowed for me. Now, he, he feels the overflowing nature of this because, look, Paul was no uh, Sunday school church boy who wanted to be a, a professional apostle when he grew up. When he grew up. Uh, Saul of Tarsus was uh, closer to an Islamic terrorist. I mean, he, he made it his life's goal to destroy the faith of those who, who, who he felt were infidels and false teachers. Uh, This is a man collecting the jackets of those who brutally murdered with stoning uh, godly deacon Stephen. This is the man whose arms are crossed as he's he's watching rock after rock uh, hit Stephen and and murder him in his his sight. And he's sitting there, it says, giving approval. This, This is who we're talking about. He says, formerly, verse 13, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. What does that mean? Ignorantly in unbelief. I think he's drawing from the Old Testament priests who would make atonement for people's sins even when those sins were done in ignorance. They were guilty, but they didn't have a complete understanding of the sins that they were committing. Paul's saying, I acted in ignorance and unbelief. I thought I was rendering service to God. Jesus said this about the Jews, they persecute because they have not known me or the Father. Romans 11, the Jews have a a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul's going, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Think of the ignorance of Paul on the Damascus road in in, in Acts 9. uh, The Lord comes to him and says, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what is Saul's response? Who are you? Lord? Is it this is the Lord? He didn't know. He didn't know he was persecuting the Lord as he was killing Christians. There was was ignorance. And this Jewish unbelief, Jesus even mentions on the cross when He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They were guilty for murdering Jesus, but they did not fully understand what they were doing. They had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So you go, how could this be the the leader of the church, the lead preacher in the Christian church, and and the only word Paul knows how to use is grace. This this is the grace of God. What is grace? The the kids' catechism we use is God's riches at Christ's expense. A more technical rendering would be undeserved favor. 
you know, we talk about or you hear people talk about cheap grace. What, what cheapens grace? What, what, what makes grace cheap? And I think I would, I would say it like this. Preaching grace without the backdrop of the law. When, when you preach grace without the backdrop of the law. This is why verse 8 is essential. Let's go back and get our context here. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, disobedient, for the ungodly, sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their father and mother, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. I'm not going to take the time, but we could show how all those things he lists are actually line up with the Ten Commandments. And this is the law that's giving definition to sin. Listen to how he says it in Romans 7. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If it wouldn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, many of you have been well taught and have, and have, and have come to these, this conclusion that the law is actually a good thing for the regenerate believer. For the regenerate believer, for the, for the believer, we look at the law and we say, this is how I love God. This is how I, I love my neighbor. That's what Jesus said the law was, a summation of love for God and love for neighbor. And for the believer, it's helpful. Jesus said, if you love me, You'll keep my commandments. But for the unbeliever, who the law does not give them the ability to love God or love their neighbor, what does it do for them? It condemns them. It, it reveals to them their sin. So you walk up to somebody in an evangelistic setting and you say, are you a good person? And they say, sure. And then you begin to go through the Ten Commandments of the law. And what happens? They're forced. They're forced to say, I'm not a good person. Off of that definition of the law you think of think of it like this an illustration um take a doctor who has to inform a patient that this patient has stage three cancer terminal cancer and they know that this patient they're talking to is particularly stubborn and probably won't initially believe the diagnosis is legitimate what is that doctor going to do that doctor is going to bring whatever, uh, whatever imaging, test results, blood work, whatever is necessary to convince that person, you do have stage three cancer. It is terminal and you will die. Now, that doctor, they want to save this patient, but what must they do in order to save the patient? They must ruin them. They must bring that person to utter hopelessness except for the cure that that doctor is going to then give them. So that that patient goes, this is my only hope. I have no other hope unless I take this doctor's advice and go through the necessary treatment. That's what the law does. It says to us, there is no hope except for this treatment, for this cure. So the law condemns the sinner, and the gospel comes in 
to save sinners. Now, here, here's the problem in our day, and, and, and again, many of us have, have noticed this, is many preachers love to preach the cure before they've diagnosed someone with the problem. Listen to how Paris Reedhead, in a book uh, he wrote called Getting Evangelicals Saved, said it. If I had my way, I would declare a moratorium on public preaching of the plan of salvation in America for one to two years. I would call on everyone who has use of the airways and the pulpits to preach the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the law of God until sinners would cry out, what must I do to be saved? And then I would take them off in a corner and I would whisper to them the gospel. Such drastic action is needed because we have gospel-hardened a generation of sinners by telling them how to be saved before they have any understanding of what they need to be saved from. The law must condemn someone in order that that person see they need to be saved. And when they see, and even in a believer's life, I really do need to be saved, and then they see the grace of God on their life, does it not result in more love for Christ? More worship of Christ? Listen, John 7, remember the, the, the sinful woman? It says it called her the woman of the city. And then it identifies her as a sinner. And it says that she came to Jesus and brought an alabaster flask of ointment, standing behind him, kissing his feet and weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair from her head and kissed his feet. And one of the Pharisees standing there watching this it, it, this is a very interesting way it reads. It, he doesn't actually say this out loud. He thinks it. And Jesus reads his thoughts. And he says, does he not know this woman is a sinner? That's what he's thinking. And Jesus reads his thoughts and then says to everyone there, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much because she'd been forgiven much. He who is forgiven little loves little. You see, this is why Paul can get so excited about grace. Because he was an expert in the law. And he knew that law doesn't just condemn to wretchedness all the other people. It condemns to, wretches, to wretchedness myself. And therefore, the grace of God has overflowed for me. But he could say that because he was able to understand the righteousness of God and His fallenness. Number four, here's the fourth thing I want us to notice, that the Gospel isn't merely a doctrine, because doctrines don't save people from hell, by the way. Christ does. Verse 15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So God didn't send from heaven a doctrine to save us. He sent His Son. He sent His Son in human form. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's why we have to make sure we're preaching the Jesus of Scripture. The one that really did come down as the eternal Son of God into human flesh incarnate who really did die for sin and rise from the dead, because if you start preaching the Mormon Jesus or the Jehovah's Witness Jesus or the Islamic Jesus that's in the Quran, nobody's going to get saved because you're preaching a false Jesus. Only the, the Jesus that came from heaven, the real Jesus, 
can save. And this is why it's so important for us to preserve a true and accurate understanding of Jesus Christ. This is why creeds and confessions are actually important. I know in a Baptist church, you know, that's a scary thing to talk about. It didn't used to be in Baptist churches. Historically, modern churches are skeptical of creeds and confessions. Where did creeds and confessions come from? Are they man's invention? Is this some sort of extra biblical thing because the Bible's not enough, so we have to create these extra documents? Where did creeds and confessions come from? Well, I would argue they came from this passage and a few others in Timothy that we'll get to. Look at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy. Pistos ho logos. Faithful is the word. It's actually a quote. It's a, it's a marker of a quotation. It's an early apostolic creedal statement that these Christians were familiar with. And he's saying, you know that statement you're familiar with? Christ came into the world to save sinners? It's a trustworthy statement. You already are familiar with that because you say it to each other. You know that. This is, this is part of apostolic tradition to synthesize certain theological points about who Christ is and what he's done so that we don't forget them, so they don't get missed by us. Uh, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So it's important what Pastor Kent uh, mentioned last week about the Trinitarian nature of Paul's theology. Already in his intro, he's already giving us the Trinity. He's, he's in verse uh, 2 using the word kurios. Same word used for Yahweh in Deuteronomy 4.4. 4. We, can't, we can't miss this stuff. This gives us and helps us make sure we're worshiping and understanding the Christ who actually came from heaven to save sinners. Jesus came not so people wouldn't feel guilty. Jesus came so that people wouldn't be guilty. There's a big difference. Christ didn't come to make sinners feel saved. Christ came to save sinners from a real penalty, eternal penalty of sin and death. We don't, we don't have a, in other words, we don't have a therapeutic Savior who just comes to make our emotions feel better. We have a true Savior who's come down to save sinners from real, eternal consequences. This is, this is why, uh, as, a, as a new Christian, I would listen to, to preachers like Leonard Ravenhill, and I, I don't agree with him on everything, but l listen to this quote, what he would do in his preaching. He, would, he says, if I was to ask you tonight if you were saved, do you say, yes, I'm saved? I got saved when so-and-so preached and then I got baptized. He'd say, well, what are you saved from? Hell? What are you saved from? Bitterness? Are you saved from lust? Are you saved from cheating? Are you saved from lying? Are you saved from rebellion against your parents? Come on, what are you saved from? Ravenhill's getting at the same thing Paul's getting at in this passage, and it's the fifth thing here, that the gospel brings fruits. The gospel brings fruit. Evidence. The first here is repentance. Look at the word in verse 13. Formerly. 
formerly. I used to be this person. I used to be a blasphemy and a persecutor. That was the old me, formerly. This is the fruit of repentance in Paul's life. And, and look, I know some of you weren't saved later in life like Paul, uh, and, and maybe you were saved as a young child, but you know what? You still have a formerly. You weren't born into the world as a believer. Jesus said we all must be born again at some point in our life. And yeah, if it's early in your life, you might not have a drastic conversion, but you do have a formerly. You do have repentance, an ongoing repentance. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Verse 14. Listen to this other fruit. With the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So, so when God gives grace to you in salvation, it results in repentance, a formerly, and it results in faith and love. These are the words that Paul's using. We think of 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. Anyone who's not loved does not know God. 1 John 4.8. Hebrews 11. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Only those of faith are children of Abraham. So, Faith in Christ, love for the church, are evidences that we've received the gospel. They're the fruits of the gospel. We're not born into the world repenting of sin, having faith in Christ, loving His church. These are gospel fruits of conversion. Listen to how it's said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved, what? Through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is. Key word, we're going to come back to that. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What is the it? What, what is the gift of God that we receive by grace? Faith. Faith is the gift of God that you receive by grace. It's the fruit of conversion. He came to save sinners and listen to this fruit. Of whom I am the foremost. Not, I used to be the foremost of sinners, but now I'm really spiritual and righteous. Present tense, I am. That's a fruit of conversion. He's not wavering in unbelief here. He knows who He is. You know, I'm... I'm I am utterly convinced there are many in the church today who would rebuke Paul for morbid introspection. They'd rebuke him. If he wasn't an inspired author, I mean, they know who Paul is, so they wouldn't do that. But if he wasn't an inspired author, and he were just a man saying the exact same things that Paul's saying, they'd rebuke him for morbid introspection. They'd take to Twitter or some response video and say, Paul's too pietistic and introspective. Trinitarians shouldn't think or act or say things like Paul's saying. They'd certainly rebuke him for Romans 7 when he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So you really want to use an absolute statement? Nothing good dwells in you, Paul? For the evil that I do not want, I keep on doing. 
Or he says, I have the, devire, the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then he says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And listen, I submit to you, Paul is not morbidly introspective. He's a mature Christian who actually understands the law and sin and grace to the point it humbles him because of his sin and yet at the same time exalts him in worship and in praise and in confidence in what Christ has done. This is a mature believer. He's not wavering in unbelief or thinking too much about himself. And I, I know there are Christians out there who are overly introspective. We actually shut down a city group years ago because it was way too introspective and it was very unhealthy. I know that stuff can happen. But look, I will not let someone steal from me. What happened in my home on Wednesday night was seven other men and a few of our sons where we're confessing our sins before the Lord some of the brothers in tears and this saying, praise you, Lord, that you're so gracious with a sinner like me and just casting themselves upon Christ. Uh, no one's taken that from me. That's what Paul's doing as a mature believer. This is a fruit of the gospel's sanctifying work in our life. And if I hear a brother go and say to the Lord, I'm the worst of sinners, I'm going to be thinking this. I won't say it out loud, but I'm going to be thinking, he's wrong, Lord. I am. And that's not wrong. That's what Paul's saying. Listen to Richard Baxter, who wrote a letter to his son and said this. When I'd become cold, and when I felt Sunday morning coming, and my heart was not filled with amazement at the grace of God, and when I was getting ready to take the Lord's Supper, do you know what I used to do? I used to take a turn up and down among the sins of my past life. I always came down with a broken and contrite heart and a renewed joy of forgiveness. Paul can't forget who he used to be and who he still is. And he also couldn't downplay the grace of God that had overflowed for him. Guys, I'm going to say something publicly here that I, I haven't said publicly, and I, I hesitate to say it now, but I think Paul's giving me the confidence to say it because he's talking about his former life. And, uh, and it, it makes me want to say something about my former life. Many of you don't know who I was when the Lord found me and saved me. And I'm... I'm quite thankful that you didn't know me at that point. Um, he found me when I was drunk at 3 a.m. Driving home from a party is when Christ saved me. And I was not having a, a moment of rebellion. I was a rebel in the totality of my life. I was a deceiver. I cheated my way through high school. I lied to parents and teachers and coaches and employers. I was a thief. I didn't just do drugs. I sold them. And I would steal from employers and then sell what I stole. 
I was violent. I would get in fights. I would punch holes in walls. I would break windows of girlfriends' cars. I was sexually immoral and full of pride. I wouldn't talk to many people that I did not consider good enough to have a relationship or to talk to me. I was filled with arrogance. I was headed for serious jail time and was in the back of cop cars on numerous occasions. And I'm, I'm watering down this testimony right now because I'm ashamed to even say what I'm saying. It's worse than this. And I, I say it for the same reason Paul said what he was before he knew Christ. There's somebody here who thinks Christ can't save you because of what you've done. He can. And he will. And this is what he does. He came to save sinners. And guys, I get, I'm the same way as you. I get so broken that I'm not holier than I am. And I think, man, I've made so little progress, but praise God, I'm not who I used to be. You know? Like, does this thought not just cause us to worship the Lord? Which is the final point here. Number six, the end and purpose of the Gospel is to worship the triune God. Look at verse 16. He says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So why is the grace of God poured out? Why is Christ merciful to sinners? It's to display the perfect patience of God so that somebody, many people, would hear about this and they would be saved. And they would cry out that this Christ would save them from their sins. And it's to produce in them thanksgiving and worship to the only God who is worthy of that worship. These are, these are incredible things. Um, I, I want to just bring us to the table. And um, I don't know how you couldn't feel gratitude for what the Lord has done for you. Uh, he, is a, he is a wonderful Savior. He is a wonderful Savior. Uh, as you take the elements, think about His body and His blood. Think about the fact He's not still in the grave, but He's risen from the dead. He's sent His Spirit to empower us and to enable us to live for Him. You know, if you, if you aren't a believer today, I'd say consider this. Consider first Jesus' ability to save sinners. His ability. Not save you from bad feelings. Save you from eternal consequences that your sin brings. And consider Paul who said, I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. God just, He loves to display His perfect patience. It's perfect. It's a perfect patience and He gives it and uses it with sinners so that we'll come to Him. I pray you'll do that. Uh, for those of you who are baptized and believing in Christ, please come to the table. Uh, rejoice in what the Lord has done for you. For those of you who have not, we'd ask you to refrain and to remember 
uh, what says in, uh, there's some prayers in page two, you can read through as you think on these things. Let's all just come before the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord, you say that we are to proclaim your death until you come. You say that's what this supper is about. To proclaim your death until you come again. And so, Lord, we proclaim our faith in what you have done. We rejoice that you finished all of that work on the cross. We thank you that you've risen from the dead, giving us hope of eternal life. And that you did complete all of the work necessary to remove our sins. So Lord, deepen our faith. Lord, we pray that the fruit of repentance and faith and love would come out of us more and more to your glory. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.